This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Hello, Heather Knight, and welcome back to our Total SF Star Trek IV episode. I couldn't be more delighted. <laughs> you That is pure, unfiltered sarcasm right <laughs> Me? there. Me? <laughs> because this is, this is not your favorite movie. Well, to be fair, I haven't seen the whole thing because I fell asleep after you told me to start watching it. Well, we're going to rectify that. Um, With your permission, I kind of tricked you into it. Our next virtual movie night is going to be Star Trek IV, January 9th, 2021. I think this is our first Total SF event of 2021. Yes, and thank God we're talking about 2021 now. I'm ready to turn the page on this brutal year. Well, we will turn the page. We will turn the movie on at 7 p.m. that night. And all day, actually 2 to 7 p.m., the Balboa Theater will be selling beer, popcorn, and merchandise outside of the theater. They've been doing this for months. They're continuing to do it. So please support them. They do it every weekend. Um, I'm not committing to a Norton the It's It appearance right now. because <laughs> I think you should. I just want to see where the numbers are trending and I want to read, you know, like the city charter or whatever, you know, I don't know if it's going to be legal to have Norton out there. Let, yeah. Let's look at the numbers. Let's let okay. Grant Colfax decide whether <laughs> Norton shows let's up. Let's write to Dr. Colfax asking whether Norton can appear in front of the Balboa Theater on January 9th. Right now, though, um, you will not be on the rest of this episode. I have two level-headed Star Trek IV super fans, and we're going to make the case for Star Trek IV for you. Carly Severn, uh, KQED reporter and editor, is joining us. And Taylor Kate Brown, our newsletter editor at The Chronicle, um, will both be joining me to talk about Star Trek IV today. Wow, that's awesome. I did not know that Taylor was a Star Trek IV fan. Yeah, we are going to, again, make the case for you. And you will watch this movie on January 9th. You mentioned it. I've tried to get you to watch it before. <laughs> I think based on your response that you've watched the first five minutes a few times but haven't gotten <laughs> any further, will you commit to watching all of Star Trek Four if we make the case? Will you commit to watching it on January 9th? Of course. If it's I- part of work, then I have to. <laughs> that I was just doing as a favor to you last time. <laughs> okay. Well, the episode's coming up once again, 7 p.m. January 9th. Support the Balboa Theater. Maybe Norton the It's It will be there. One more thing. I appear on the Bay Curious podcast with Carly Severn and Olivia Allen Price. We're talking about San Francisco movies, what makes a good San Francisco movie, and we talk about Star Trek IV. Check out Bay Curious wherever you stream Total SF. Star Trek 4 coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob with Heather Knight, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much.
Welcome to Total SF, and I'd like to welcome our two guests today. I am super excited. We're doing Star Trek Four, and I basically have corralled the two biggest Star Trek Four fans in my life for this tribute. And I want to start with you, Taylor Kate Brown, newsletter editor at The Chronicle. My memory, you correct me, when we met uh, a couple years ago, I, as way of greeting, you called Shotgun on this podcast. You told me, Peter, if you ever do Star Trek Four, I want to be a part of it. Am I remembering that correctly? I don't know if it was the first time we met, but definitely early on when I knew Total SF was a thing and I knew that you were looking back at movies that were specifically set or had to do with San Francisco, um, immediately came to mind and uh, wanted, you know, if you don't say what you want in the world, sometimes you don't get it. So, <laughs> um, well, I'm very glad you're here. Yeah. You're very glad because Heather Knight, my partner, she does not like this movie. And I've I'm heard. hoping she's listening to this podcast. We're going to convince her. <laughs> uh, my second guest today, Carly Severn. I feel like we've talked about this subject before. Carly, you're a reporter and editor at KQED. We just did a Bay Curious episode about movies, and we're still talking. I can't believe... Well, I think that we'll be talking about this movie for the end of time, quite frankly. Uh So in the Bay Curious episode that you and I were on, Peter, we ranged all across the map. We talked about a bunch of movies that were set in San Francisco, and yet we kept both returning to our one true love, which is Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. So the episode, I think it was set up that we were supposed to argue, but we never really had too many disagreements, except that we both wanted Star Trek IV as our number one movie. Um, This is a fantastic movie. I would love to get your background. You both are much younger than me. Where did you see Star Trek IV for the first time? And where are you kind of in the Trekkie, Trekker, Trek-loving universe? I'll start with you, Taylor. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this, and honestly, I can't remember. Um, I know I forced my husband to watch it a couple years back, um, because if you love me, you should probably be able to enjoy this movie. Um, (laughs) But I had definitely watched it before then, and the reason why I'm not sure is because I came into Star Trek as a a Star Trek TV show fan. Um, My parents watched Next Generation when I was growing up, and... You know, I got into Deep Space Nine very hard myself, even though I was quite young at the time. Um, And so I haven't actually seen a ton of Star Trek movies. I've seen more as I've gotten older, but Star Trek Four is already sort of, was always sort of in my worldview as the Star Trek movie of the original cast that I really, really enjoyed. Carly, you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, gosh. Well, I grew up kind of as a kid on the original series that was on TV a bunch in the UK and loved that. I think it's a testament to how much I love this movie and it's so ingrained in me that I don't remember the first time I saw it as a kid. It was just always with me. I do remember taking my cousin, who was almost exactly the same age as me, to go and see it uh, at a movie theater and her just not getting it at all, which was my first kind of idea in the world that not everyone liked Star Trek, which hitherto just I hadn't realized. I just thought this was something everybody loved. Um, But yeah, I've loved this movie since I, I think probably maybe eight or nine and it very much introduced me to San Francisco you know this for me was always my idea of like oh that's that's what this really cool place looks like so the fact that you know I should kind of time travel much like the crew of the Enterprise and tell my eight-year-old self that 
not only you know are you living in San Francisco, but you're also talking about Star Trek Four on a podcast. Um, I think little me would be thrilled. I think it's so awesome that that introduced you to San Francisco because. I think this reflects San Francisco, what's best about San Francisco. Um, I want to get into the history a little bit, just as I tend to do, I dig around the archive. Um, this was the fourth in the series, a third in a trilogy with Star Trek II and Star Trek III. Our crew has destroyed the USS Enterprise. They've captured a Klingon bird of prey and are returning to Earth, and they run across a giant Duraflame log. I don't know what to... <laughs> describe this thing do you guys have you figured out what that was I, I think i just respectfully call him the probe so I was, I was digging through and reading old chronicle stories and the answer to that question is in the chronicle uh, leonard nimoy this was the second star trek film he made and he had made films before and he was really really big on how he always came in under budget so the Duraflame log was just like, hey, I'm not going to put my money in that. You know, I'm going to put my money in some other places. Probably Shatner's salary was part of it. And there's so many little ways that they, you know, cut corners, but you don't see it. The sound that the probe makes, it's sped up whale sounds. And the wub, 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 wub. That was actually, the sound designer kept doing different sounds for the probe. And finally, he said, Leonard Nimoy, what do you want this probe to sound like? So Leonard Nimoy starts going, well, have it go kind of like whoop, 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 whoop. And then they used that. They used like Leonard Nimoy's little sound effects. Well, that seems smart budgeting, right? Because uh, it's not the point of the movie, really. Yes, it's the inciting, like, like, baddie if there is one in that movie. But like... There's like you're you're not spending a lot of time with with the probe. Yeah, I mean it, it and this is the year that Aliens came out, another just absolutely masterful oh God, um, right. movie where they just they just like trimmed the budget here and there. This was just like a good year for being thrifty in movies. Um Leonard Nimoy interviewed with the Chronicle. He said that um he was the one who really pushed for a more family-friendly version after the first three Star Treks. Uh, This is a quote from Nimoy to the Chronicles' John Stanley. We'd just done two films with a lot of violence, with real bad guys, Sturm and Drang, Death and Dying. I'd been a party to all that, but I wanted the film to be particularly different in tone. The worst thing that happens in this film, I pinch a punk rocker on the neck because he won't turn his radio down. Star Trek IV is a massive hit. Uh, Up until, I think... Star Trek First Contact, it was the highest grossing film, made $130 million, knocked Crocodile Dundee off its seven-week reign at the top of the box office, and was just considered a huge success. It was, uh, it was definitely one of the high points for the Star Trek franchise. Um, and uh, Taylor, did you mention that you had done a little bit of digging yourself? Okay, so this is a little bit more, less archive digging, more like you know, went down a Wikipedia hole uh, digging. Mm. Um, so apparently in the shooting script, the original sh- shooting script, do you know there's a scene when they, it's one of the first times they're actually out and about in San Francisco. Sorry if I'm jumping ahead in the plot here, but, and they see someone open up a, a newspaper stand and there's something about nuclear talks. And mm. McCoy says, they didn't like, can't believe they never got out of this. Like, can't believe they made it out of this century. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And in the shooting script, it says the Chronicle, and I what? found a version of it online, and it looks legit. I'll send you the link. the 
in the shooting script, it, the guy pulls out a San Francisco Chronicle. In the movie, it's the San Francisco Register. And I'm sure there was a mysterious, I'm, I'm sure there was, there's got to be a story there, right? Like, oh no, the Hearst family. Like, <laughs> no, at that time, it wasn't the Hearst family. It it's, was the examiner. It's so um, funny you say yeah. that, because oh, when I watched it, when I saw the San Francisco Register, I thought, hmm, I bet that was meant to be the Chronicle, and they couldn't do it. <laughs> Now I know. Why would we not let them do it? It's Star Trek Four. I mean, what kind of... Somebody must have gotten... I blame everything on Shatner. Shatner <laughs> must have pissed someone off. Um, you think about it like Bullet used the Chronicle, So I Married an Axe Murderer filmed inside the Chronicle. Zodiac, half of it's the Chronicle. Okay, this is... this is uh, Taylor, this is part of our mission after the podcast is to figure out... Um, and there are still like circulation people who are around who can probably answer this. Figure out why the Chronicle is not in there. Um, Taylor and Carly, would you... Like, I don't know how you feel about what they did with Star Wars and E.T., but would you approve of some sort of special edition where they redo the special effects and put the chronicle in there instead of the register 100 percent. that's that's the only thing you need to change (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I would i I can't think of anything i'd support more i mean i've been wondering how could this movie be more perfect and the answer was just staring me in the face the whole time clearly We will do that. Um, it'll be a special edition. They'll re-release it in theaters with the Chronicle in the rack, and then we'll add like a KQED uh, ad to the back of one of the Muni Amazing. buses that makes Amazing. its way into the plot of this film. Mm-hmm. So um, we had done a bunch of stories back then. This was still a pretty big deal when someone shot a movie in San Francisco, so there were a lot of uh, Chronicle articles. Um, I wanted to start out, and this is probably going to be the longest segment, but what do you like and what works about the film and i'm going to start with you carly what did you like about the film oh geez i mean how long do you have i my love for this movie knows no bounds and i always keep going back to the fact that as you say peter there's no baddie there's no villain even the the mild peril scenes are the mildest of peril they are scored by this kind of buoyant caper music as they're like running around uh, a, a nuclear vessel and a hospital and it's just it's pure joy and I love the fact that everyone knows what movie they're in you know there's no misstep there's no dissonance there everyone knows the note to hit there it's like you know you get those celebrity cameo episodes of a show you really love and the best ones are when the celebrity in question just commits to the bit. There is no irony. There's no wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's no snark. There's no insincerity. It's just pure commitment. And that's what I feel like you get with this movie. And then you get this glorious setup where the cool and calm collected crew of the Enterprise, who are normally pretty great at their jobs, they get to Earth in the 1980s and they are complete dorks. Like they are such (laughs) dweebs. That is what I love about this. It's a miracle these people ever got out of the 20th century. We're still using money. We've got to find some. Spock, the rest of you stay here. And the rest of you break up. You look like a cadet review. Everyone is in casual Friday clothes, apart from Kirk. Uh, it's little <laughs> things like, you know, Sulu tries to operate the helicopter he's in and the windscreen wipers turn on. Like, whomst among us has not been in that situation? But I think the one thing that really struck me on this rewatch to talk about it with you guys was this fondness between the crew that I'd always kind of taken for granted, but I'd never noticed how well Nimoy kind of telegraphs it as well. Just... 
the the way they speak to each other, you genuinely believe that these people have been co-workers for decades and decades. It's these tiny things. When they're time traveling, I notice for the first time that there's some kind of glass screen uh, next to Uhuru. It breaks and it shatters her with glass. And Kirk, when he hears that glass shatter, he looks over to check if Uhuru is okay. And she says, I'm okay, I'm okay, it's fine. And later when Kirk is in the hospital, they're trying to resuscitate Chekhov. He doesn't call him Chekhov. He says, wake up, Pavel. Like he breaks rank <laughs> and calls him by his first name. All these tiny things that, oh, they just made me love it even, even more. So, yeah, like I say, how long do you have? Taylor, I, sh- I, should, I should cede my, the floor to you. <laughs> No, I love it. I love every point you've made, especially about that fondness, because at this point, you know, they had been, even the actors had been co-workers for such a long time. And, you know, the ups and downs of being on a TV show that gets canceled and then a series of movies that, you know, is popular, but like also some like, and still like a niche thing. Um, I think the thing that I really loved about this movie and I've always loved is that I feel like it's a great intro into Star Trek. I think it has all those elements of Star Trek that are very Star Trek, you know, the sort of like saving the day, like grand ideals, leave no man behind. But it's also in this really wry and funny way uh, telling a great story. It's There's just so many points that are just small funny moments encased in a sort of larger like not really an action plot but sort of like a caper I think is the best way to put it um so I love that it's comedic it's a little bit suspenseful um if you know these people you love them even more if you don't know these people you get to know them really well really quickly and like who these characters are and how they interact with each other um I think it's a it's actually a really nice message there's a point in the movie where Kirk, you know, thinking about the whole thing so far is that, you know, when humans uh, hunted the whales to extinction, they were only killing their own future. And which is a much more environmentalist message to me than just generically saving the whales, right? It's like, you're part of this larger ecosystem that depends on you and all the other creatures that are on earth, um, which Fox says pretty early in the movie, it's arrogant to think that this probe is here for humans. Um, So there's just a lot of really nice, small moments that are just wonderful. And the whole movie has like this, it just, there's very little uh, time wasted in the movie where you're not entertained and like involved. Yeah, I I almost think it's like a holiday film. And I've got, I'm working on an essay called Star Trek Four is the best Christmas film. It doesn't take place (laughs) during Christmas. It doesn't, but you know, everybody argues about Die Hard. I think it's almost structured like it's a wonderful life. I mean, it sort of, um, there's an environmental message, but I think the thesis is that people are going to do good and camaraderie and togetherness and selflessness, um, are gonna are gonna win the day, and then it sticks to that throughout it, and it, it's just done so beautifully. Um, I also love the fact, and, and you mentioned it, Carly, that I mean, there's no bad guy. There, there's no there's a there's the punk on the bus, and he's not even a bad guy. That's done for comedic effect. Um, you know, there's there's this kind of um, idea that's beneath it all that we need to be more. Um, 
you know, better stewards for our planet. And, uh, uh, but throughout it, it's them not against someone else. There's no, you know, with a lot of bad films, there's a lot of miscommunication will drive the plot. What's driving this plot is just doing something good. And you don't see that often, certainly not in a non-Hallmark, non-Holiday film, certainly not in an action film. Um, this is an era when Rocky IV and, and Top Gun, where they just kind of just have this comic book villain that's the other, another country. Uh, uh, and, and Star Trek IV doesn't do that. And I think that was such a higher degree of difficulty and the script is just pitch perfect, not just in the individual lines and the warmth and togetherness, but in the tone. The tone throughout it is positive and good. It's, it's, it's a film, the kind of film that I am just dying to show my kids, and I always have been. I developed a, a small theory about the kind of caper nature of it that I'd love to share with you guys and get your take on it. Mm-hmm. So... The Next Generation, right, starts the year after this this film was released, 1987. Uh, the Voyage Home is released in 86. And one big beat that TNG always hits is you have these holodeck episodes, right, where the crew that you know and love go and step outside their regular uh, lives, their regular attire even. You see them dressed differently, and they're always tons of fun. There's always a moment where they're like, oh, no, the guns really work. Like, the holodeck episodes are always the same, but they're great. And it made me think, did the folks who made Next Generation take that cue from The Voyage Home? And that's a, the the out of out of placeness. Um, there's a I'm going to get this wrong, but um, there's a original series episode where they go back in time, and it's it's much it's very dramatic if I remember. Um, and that, like you said, it happens in the next generation, and it continues to happen in Deep Space Nine. It's sort of like putting our heroes in your time um, or a time close to something that feels familiar or like out of their own regular Starfleet uniform, you know, standards. Um, and I think that, like, that is... The, the fish-out-of-water element is great here because they still have a job to do. They can't be, like... They can have a caper, but they can't, like, be totally off-base. They gotta... You know, it's very much them going to a new alien world. They have to make it up as they go along. It's the same thing when they go back to the 80s. A lot of movies from this era don't age well, and um, they have problematic elements. And I, I think about the worst thing you can say is that, you know, the idea that the whales should have been captive other than let go, that that's the part. It's kind of anti-free willy, you know, for, for part of the plot. But even that's explained, that there's hunting, and you find out later that the, the whales are in peril. So, um, yeah, I, I just love it. Any, any other likes? before we, we get to a very, very short dislike section, and then we'll talk about the San Francisco scenes. Yeah, that dislike section had better be short because I don't think we, <laughs> we have much to cover. But like the environmentalism, I was looking back and it was really responsible for, for me kind of waking up as a kid and realizing about you know the connectedness of the planet. And on a very personal kind of profit level, I, this is bad, this is probably the first time I've admitted this, there was a show on UK kids TV called Blue Peter, 
And I've been trying to think of the American equivalent and I can't. I think if you had some super earnest PBS variety show that aired like nightly for children, this would be it. So you could get a Blue Peter badge and these things were coveted, right? They were like the golden ticket of Willy Wonka. But you had to write into the show and say uh, something that made you sound very worthy and noble. And because I'd seen Star Trek IV... I wrote a letter to the the producers of Blue Peter saying that I wanted to save the whales and could they provide me with any kind of administrative information to help me on my quest, which I just literally adopted because I'd seen the movie. And they got back to me saying, you know, here's a leaflet. Uh, here's a Greenpeace uh, idea. And also, here's your Blue Peter badge for clearly being such an environmentally minded young girl. And the thing is that I then like swaggered around 1990s Yorkshire, clutching this badge, like flashing it all the time, like I was a cocky young FBI agent in a movie. <laughs> and you get like free entry into museums and stuff, which was, you know, what I was all about because I was a dorky little kid. Uh, but yeah, I kind of. All of that aside, it really did make me think about the planet, which hitherto, kids are kind of innately selfish, you know, they really don't care. And it kind of woke me up in that sense. So thanks, Kirk. Thanks, Spock. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, okay, don't throw anything at me. We're on Zoom, so I'm actually safe. I'm going into the dislikes. I'm going to give you two a chance first, unless you would like me to start it off. I I do have a couple of just real low-grade criticisms. I really, there are a couple minor things, but the one that I just, uh, you know, I always thought this, but when I watched it last night, I had the same exact feeling. I don't get that time travel sequence. Like, it felt like, if talking about, um, you know, using budget, it felt like somebody gave ILM, like, X amount of money, and they were like, we're going to use every single dollar of that. (laughs) And, like, what? it doesn't, it's distracting from the rest of the movie. I think that's the best way I would put it, right? Like... It's very, um, it's very uh, Terrence Malick for a couple minutes there, and then comes back to the real world. I kind of feel like that scene. You know, I remember one of the probably the first action movie I saw was Superman, and Superman had a similar time travel scene. So I feel like Star Trek Four is like, well, everybody saw Superman, so they know if you go around real fast or whatever, we'll just make something up, and then they. They threw in, like you said, probably 70 to 80% of their ILM budget on that one sequence. Um, good call. Good call. I'm, I'm with that. Carly, do you have one? I have to co-sign Ropey CGI in the time travel sequence. Also, I now have the phrase uh, bargain bin Terrence Malick knocking around my head. So <laughs> if you see me gazing off into the distance, that's what I'm thinking about. Also, like, I kind of want, I always want more Uhuru. Or I, I always feel she's so yeah. like criminally underused in pretty much every aspect of Star Trek. Sulu as well. I feel like there's a 
I, I think I know that there's a whole sequence that they were planning, this whole like subplot about Sulu going back to San Francisco, which he literally says, oh, I was born there as they arrive. And then you never really hear that about that again. You know, he doesn't seem to know his way around. And yeah, I kind of wanted more of that. And also like, you know, this, the Russian stuff, the Cold War stuff, it seems pretty dated now to, to our 2020 eyes. I, I agree with you on that. Um, I, I think the first half hour on rewatch or watching the movie isolated is a little bit slow. That moment where you're packing before you go on a trip and the packing really isn't the fun part. That's how I feel about the beginning. Um, There's some good parts in there too. They set it up well, but there's just a lot of exposition there that is involved with other movies and other things that when you're just watching this in isolation, I kind of wish it went a little faster in our director's cut with the Chronicle and the KQED ad. Maybe we'll, we'll tighten a little bit of that up and find out what they have on the cutting room floor for uh, Uhuru and, um, and uh, uh, Sulu. Um, the other thing, Catherine Hicks, she's all right. I, I feel like uh, that character was a little bit one note. She's on screen a lot, but she's, um, kind of always sort of flustered and her intelligence doesn't come through as much as her passion. And um, it's not misogynist, but I feel like that could have been a stronger character. She's a scientist and, and a lot of her reaction is really emotional in a way that I think a lot of 1980s movies wanted to portray women. And I wish that was a little bit different. I would agree with that, Peter. I One of the other things I would say is that, yeah, I'm totally, I really enjoy the last scene where she's like, oh, I'm not going with you. I'm going to my science festival. Bye. Um, I love that scam at the end. Um, I got to go to the future and to be a, a cool scientist in the future. Um, but before that, I just feel like the character is all over the place, right? Yeah. It's like, why is she talking to these men? Like, why? Like, she gives them a ride. Like, I, I don't get it. And it's also sort of, it doesn't really track. And I don't think it's very well developed considering how much she is on screen. I will agree with that. Also, stop me if I'm wrong here. I read a rumor that the role of the marine biologist was meant to go to Eddie Murphy originally. I can see the faces that you're making on this Zoom that we're doing. (laughs) I couldn't believe it either. I've read this independently in two separate places that this was meant to be an Eddie Murphy character, which frankly would have been brilliant given this is like 1986 Eddie Murphy. And when he was unavailable for some reason, they had to kind of retrofit the character, which is why apparently the role stays platonic and Shatner doesn't get, you know, the kiss that he nearly always gets in every other Star Trek episode. Wow, that is incredible. I am. I know what I'm going to spend the rest of my weekend doing <laughs> is trying to chase down. Carly, you have blown my mind. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep uh-huh. it together for the rest of the podcast. So Taylor, if I just start like, Totally stammering. I'll take, I'll take the you baton. Take over, yep. you're in yeah, I can see your brain slowly <laughs> churning. It's. <laughs> what have I done? Yeah. So the other things, the only other things are things that are just like, you know, it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson type stuff where, you know, you're just kind of a jerk if you point it out. Why didn't they just bring her on the spaceship in the beginning? She would have given them the whales and I'm I'm just going to enjoy the film and I'm not going to be that guy. Um, Let's go to San Francisco locations. And I want to start with the greatest minute and a half in San Francisco film history. Sorry, Vertigo. Sorry, Zodiac. Sorry, The Conversation. Sorry, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Punk on the bus with Spock and Kirk. The whole of us, we us the, the only choice we're given is how many megatons? 
Which, the punk on the bus scene is fantastic, but just Spock and Kirk talking on the bus, I could have seen an entire movie like that, like My Dinner with Andre, Spock and Kirk just on a bus chatting about whatever. Um, Fantastic scene. Your thoughts? That scene is immortal, and I think... It's a really funny movie, right? There's so many hilarious lines and little throwaway lines as well. I always love the bit where in the, they're in the pawn shop and he's trying to uh, get money for his uh, eyeglasses. And then the dude is like, I'll, I'll give you $100 for it. And Shatner's like, is that a lot? <laughs> and just with this look on his face, it's really funny when he can be bothered to act properly. But I think that, that scene when him and Spock are chatting after Spock has immobilized the punk and they have this conversation about profanity in the 20, 20th century, it is just hilarious. Uh, that to me is just, I cackle every time. What's your question? Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you, and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. You'll find it in all the literature of the period. For example? Well, the collected works of Jacqueline Suzanne. The novels are Harold Robbins. Ah. The Giants. And it's not even like a big boom punchline. It's just this really lovely, natural exchange between two people who clearly know each other inside out. Yeah. And they bring it back like later in the movie when, you know, Spock occasionally swearing um, <laughs> when because it's like these colorful metaphors. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was great. I love the I love the feeling of that in that scene of like really being on a, a city bus. Right. It's like a bunch of people who, who don't really know each other. It's one guy who's being a jerk. Spock takes him out and everyone immediately was like, yes, yes. Thank you, sir. And then nobody says anything else. And that's the moment's over. But it's a perfect sort of city uh, boss moment. Like yeah. you've definitely had one of those weird situations that like you tell the story about uh, <laughs> of you being on a bus or on Muni or on the BART. Yeah, I, that bus too. I mean, whoever was involved with the production design, they didn't try to clean up the bus. Like the Chronicle, the Zodiac movie, David Fincher came in the Chronicle and said, this is too messy. I'm going to go build a Chronicle in LA that's not messy. They did not try to clean up the bus. There is graffiti in back of them. It is a total Muni experience. Um, probably the 76X Marin Headlands. That's what that bus would be. That bus does exist. There is a bus that it takes you to... right to this, uh, not this aquarium that doesn't exist. <laughs> this not real aquarium. My <laughs> question is where was the punk on the bus going? I, I just, 
I know a little bit about punk culture during that time. Um, I wasn't really part of it, but I knew people who were. I didn't know a lot of punk rockers who were heading to Belvedere for their Mater D job. I don't know where he was going, but fantastic scene. I absolutely love it. I mean, he's brought his own tunes. I think that's a <laughs> crucial hint. I think that he's not necessarily going to somewhere to do something. I, I think he's just riding the bus, man. He's just chilling. He's just got his Muni month long card and it's just going bus to bus playing his radio i i can yeah. i like that I'd, I'd like a whole uh separate like netflix series i guess it would be cbs interactive series just on the punk of the bu- on the bus <laughs> in his life um yeah so um other other san francisco other location things what did you like about it as a san francisco movie yeah i think on my most recent rewatch um and for Carly, I have only lived in the area for two years. Um, so a lot of this sort of local references totally blew by me in previous um, watches. And I was kind of shocked about how there are moments that are very sort of like touristy San Francisco. You know, you get the bridge, um, you're in Chinatown, um, you can see uh, the Transamerica Tower. But there's also these references that are like, very San Francisco. Um, one of the later in the movie, they say, you know, Chekhov's in Mercy Hospital in the Mission District. And you're I'm like, oh, that's San Francisco General. Um, this line where they say, uh, George and Gracie wandered into the San Francisco Bay as uh, calves. And you're like, oh, that happens all the time. Um, the reference to the student movement in Berkeley, I think there's just these really specific um, references and moments that are very San Francisco that I don't know I would have necessarily caught or thought of as deeply before I lived here. It, you know, there was a there was an event that happened in 1984, 1985, where um, Humphrey, the humpback whale, came into the bay, and it was very much like on all the networks every day, and he went up to the Delta, and then eventually they coaxed him back out of the bay using... Oh, geez, I think some predatory sounds or something underwater. But there were, like, children's books made out of it. So I I checked in the Chronicle, and Nimoy says that Humphrey did not inspire the movie. But I I think, you know, maybe they tinkered with the script a little bit to add that element. Well, first off, I should say, I think Nimoy just didn't want to give a payout to Humphrey. That really, (laughs) yeah. That saddens me, because I'd always thought he was a, a man of the people and a man of the whales. I squealed when I first saw this movie again uh, a couple of nights ago because I realized the first glimpse you get of San Francisco is around that kind of Columbus, North Beach area. And I just love it there. And also they walk past this great bar, The Saloon, uh, which I believe is on Green Street. And Mm -hmm. that for me is very special because that was the scene of my last show that I saw before the pandemic hit in the week before Shelter in Place came into effect. I had a great week. I really, really kind of roamed around and just had a, had a ball. Um, I think I knew what was coming. And it was great. Super fun. And yes, yeah, seeing the saloon, seeing them walk past it. It's the moment when they realize where to go and get the transparent aluminum um, when the, the door opens and it's the yellow pages sign on the building. And yeah, uh, that made my heart swell and then totally broke it. I also love that they park the Bird of Prey in Golden Gate Park and then walk all the way to Columbus Avenue before they, they split up. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and they didn't have money, so they didn't take no. the bus. Um, that, that's, a, that's a long walk. I think I've done that walk. Along that line is when they're walking along the... Uh, Spock and Kirk are walking along the marina, and uh, Dr. Taylor drives up to give them a ride. And like, oh, do you need a ride back to San Francisco? And you're like, they are in San Francisco. They're on the marina. It's like Chrissy Field is right there. Yeah. Come on, Star Trek Four. Yeah, and she's all weird about it. She's like, you can't even get back to San Francisco without a lift. And it's like, dude, they're in San Francisco. You should live here too. <laughs> and another thing I like about this is that this kind of started what ended up being a really steady use of San Francisco in Star Trek films. It was mentioned before this that Starfleet was in San Francisco, but um, the fact that they would do a whole film here, and then it became sort of this, you know, kind of constantly shifting where Starfleet is and where it isn't, but um, it, it was kind of the beginning of all that, and I don't watch Star Trek as much as some of you do, but um, I thought it was a... A uh, nice little introduction for that. Yeah, they really, um, I think they really built on that, but it's, it's, never, it's never been as in-depth or truly San Francisco as this movie. Um, one of the things I just recently watched was Deep Space Nine has this episode. It's a two-parter. Um, it's set in San Francisco in 2024, um, and I won't get too, do, too deep into the details, but it's, um, it's pretty depressing because... It's all about homelessness and mm. moving people off into different districts so rich people can't see where the where how they're living or, you know, working against a recession. So it's it's kind of deeply upsetting. But it's not San Francisco. It's a it's sort of a morality tale that happens to be set in San Francisco because the characters were going there and they have this time travel like moment. Um, so the thing that I really like about this movie is that it truly is in San Francisco rather than just sort of that being like, oh, the place where, you know, we go back to when we have to dock our ships. Yeah. Or the place that we destroy in Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> yes. Which, which uh, yes. <laughs> um, that San Francisco is like so overdeveloped. There's only a couple things you can recognize. The Transamerica Pyramid, the Ferry Building. And like there might have been a cable car in the background and then everything else is just this like I'm like, there's no way even in 300 years that the progressive San Francisco <laughs> politicians are going to allow that ma- amount of building um, and then they destroy it That's all. That's funny you would say that because there's a line in this movie that is actually like hilarious to a 2020 San Franciscans that's not intended to be. Uh, after uh, Sulu says, San Francisco, I was born here. I think it's McCoy says... Um, hasn't changed very much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I, I prefer the 1986 um, San Francisco to some of the future iterations, even though it's supposed to kind of be a utopia. Um, <laughs> wanted to get get to the wrenching... Um, I wanted to get to the wrenching job of ranking this film with other Star Trek films. And um, I'm going to start... I think this is my favorite. I, I, Star Trek Two is, I think, the best film, but I think this one's my favorite. Um, and I think, like, Star Trek Two, Star Trek Four, and Star Trek Six, just watching those three films is, like, Star Trek perfection for me. Like, if I want to just sit down and not be annoyed by anything, I think the, I think the sixth film is almost as good as the other two, but those are my three favorites. And then I really like the new films. Um, I hope they make a fourth. 
I think I'm a little bit biased because I've watched them with my son and we did a marathon and watched all three in IMAX once. And it's just one of my really favorite parenting memories, having him be excited about that. So I, I like the new films a lot. Um, I thought they started it off pretty well with the Chris Pine Shatner and handled that well. But I think this is probably my favorite. I'm going I'm to go 1A Star Trek 4, 1B Star Trek 2, 6, then the new films. Um, so I will caveat this with the fact that I have not seen six and although I've heard good things from, I know, oh my God, your face right oh now. Oh my God. You, <laughs> I wish I was you. Oh my God. It's, it's really good. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. <laughs> um, yeah, because, like I said, because I sort of came to it through television, my movie watching has been somewhat scattershot. So I think of the ones that I've seen, um, four is definitely my favorite. I don't know if it's the best cause I haven't seen them all, but definitely my favorite. Um, I would rank the first of the new movies up there very high. I think that's just a really satisfying movie um, if you're both a Trek fan or if you're not. Um, and then I definitely would put Wrath of Khan there in in the top. Um, I don't remember it as much, weirdly. I feel like this movie, Voyage Home, is like much more burned onto my consciousness than Wrath of Khan. I think for all the reasons that we've been talking about, it's such a solid movie across the board aside from being a really great Trek movie. Well, I should say I'm kind of an insufferable purist about the movies. I tend to stop at six and steadfastly refuse to acknowledge <laughs> the existence of any movies after that, except for maybe Generations, which I have a soft spot for that the movie hasn't yeah. really earned because it's not a good movie. But I just really like it. I love how it brings Picard and Kirk together. I like that Malcolm McDowell just kind of pops up doing his aging Droog thing. So Generations can stay. I'm a fan of Generations. With the new movies, I I haven't enjoyed a single one, and I'm really sorry to say that because I I'm not w- one of these people that just enjoys professionally <laughs> pooping on other people's dreams and desires. Like I I take no pleasure in that, um, yeah. but they just do not do it for me. My favorite Star Trek movie of all time is to Wrath of Khan. I know that movie inside out. I think I watch it on, well, during the pandemic, it's been probably a monthly basis, if not every three weeks. Um, I discover something new every time. I literally went to go and see a director's cut that was introduced by William Shatner last year. So that kind of tells you how into it I am. I also love the fact that that movie is basically Moby Dick. So it's really fitting that the second best Star Trek in my mind, which is for The Voyage Home, is also a tale about whales. But Peter, I'm with you. Six, I think, is so great. That's probably the one that I watched the most as a kid, which is really funny. You'd think it would be Voyage Home, but it wasn't. I just watched Six again and again and uh, really didn't get that it was written by a bunch of uh, Shakespeare enthusiasts. And now I do. (laughs) Well, thank you both so much. I look forward to watching this film with you in person. Um, Heather Knight and I have for years, it's kind of been a secret that we've been sort of raising money, hoping to show Star Trek four on either the deck or in the hangar of the USS Hornet, which is a aircraft carrier anchored in Alameda. Um, I was not telling anybody this because I was afraid someone would copy us and do it before us. But now I realize like no one can do it. So I can just talk about it. Someday I want to do a live um, for, you know, subscribers or whoever uh, exhibition of this film. Um, Try and invite the punk on the bus 
and of course invite both of you because you're you're now my Star Trek Four friends, um, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. Yay! Closing thought, Carly. Oof! If you haven't seen Star Trek Four, I presumably a lot more people have time on their hands right now. I would really recommend that they they spend that extra time discovering what I would conservatively say is one of the loveliest, most joyous, funniest, warmest movies ever made. And you don't really even need to like Star Trek to love it. And whoever is in your pod, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, 90-year-old grandmother, keep her safe, uh, your children, whatever. Everybody can watch it together. It's a movie for everybody. Or in fact, if your pod is made up of whales. Sorry. Excellent. Excellent. No, 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 no. no never apologize. Had to do it. Had to do it. It, it. it occurred to me that there had been not one whale pun during the whole taping of this, and I was getting really antsy, and I just had to get it out. You got you to gotta do what you got to do. I, I support it. Taylor, closing thought? Yeah, I would echo the fact that if you think you don't like Star Trek, um, hang in for that first 30 minutes, and you will be delighted. Once they get past the sort of, like, setup from the last movie... This is a movie that anybody can enjoy. Well, thank you both. And um, uh, yeah, hope to see you again in the real world soon, hopefully in a movie theater or an aircraft carrier, hopefully watching Star Trek Four. I, for one, cannot wait. Me too. Live long and prosper. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Carly Severn and Taylor Kate Brown. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod.